But I've been, I've been uh, toying in my head with this whole notion of, I don't remember another time. Jim and I were talking about it before the service. I don't remember another time when Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, came on April 1st, April Fool's Day. Because, you know, the 1st of April is on a different calendar day each, each year. And then, of course, Easter does this dance where it's never at the same place year after year. It's tied to the lunar cycle and Passover. And so they just don't seem to ever intersect. And, and so all across the land today, one pastor after another cannot resist making the point of Resurrection, God's greatest Easter prank ever, right? You just when you thought you'd got rid of Jesus, just when you thought we have finished the man, so now we can get off with get on with things for ourselves. Surprise. April Fools, Jesus is risen. And yet, that just doesn't satisfy me. Something about God pulling, God was not pranking, God was not fooling. As we rehearsed on Good Friday, this was in all horrible seriousness. That for man, the creature, the creator dies, the son of God lays his life down, is forsaken and separated by God the Father. There's no prank here. There's no April Fool's here. This is real. And yet, as I thought about that further, I realized that outside these walls, out there other places where people are out hanging around on Sunday morning, they are likely thinking April Fool's on the whole Easter thing. That the Christians are actually the April Fools. The Christians who are believing this thing have been taken in by this centuries-old prank of Jesus being risen. And they don't believe it's true. In fact, the scripture tells us that the word of the cross and the resurrection are to those who don't believe, to those who are perishing, to those who are lost, it's foolishness. That we are, in fact, fools for Christ. The Bible says that the wisdom of God, or, or the foolishness, rather, of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Now, what determines who's wise and who's the fool is what's real, what's true. Mark, the gospel of Mark, is an intriguing gospel. It's intriguing because it starts and ends rather abruptly, surprisingly abruptly. The action-packed opening to the Gospel of Mark, where all of a sudden, here is Jesus, and, and he shows up with, with, at, at, to, to, in front of John the Baptist, Baptist and is baptized, and immediately he's gathering people, he's teaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons. He goes to Peter's house, and there he heals her mother-in-law. And they bring all kinds of people there that same night, and on it goes, healings and, and healings, deliverance. And we're not even told who is this Jesus. It's like we're supposed to, as the gospel starts and as we continue to read, we're supposed to be looking for the answer to the question, who is this Jesus? Where did he come from? And then the gospel ends just as abruptly. 
The gospel ends leaving us dangling, hanging, perhaps for you and I to figure out what does this mean? What are we supposed to do with it? It's that abrupt ending of the Gospel of Mark that I want to talk about this morning. We already read part of it in Mark chapter 16. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles. If you're using the church Bible in front of you, except if you're on the front row, which if you're on the front row, congratulations, you are very brave indeed. Hardly anybody will do that. We'll talk about that a little later. But, but if, you, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 853. Mark chapter 16. We read most of it. I want to... I wanna, uh, uh, follow our way back through that, but you can't get to Mark 16 without reading in from chapter 15. We rehearsed that on, on Friday night, but one thing that becomes clear at the end of chapter 15 is that undeniably, unmistakably, there's no doubt about this, Jesus is dead. That's Mark's testimony. You see it happen as, he's just, as he portrays it for us. In verse 37 of chapter 15, Jesus cries out with a loud cry, and it's a victorious cry. It's a, it is finished. And then he breathed his last. He didn't breathe anymore. He dies. That's a strange way for crucifixion to end. The centurion watching this knows this because he's been on the execution detail before. He's seen many a man die, and they don't go out with a victorious shout and then just decide on their own to stop breathing. No, they go out with a whimper as they lose the strength to even draw in one last breath. The centurion watches this, and he declares, truly, this man was the Son of God, was because he's gone. The three women, many others who knew him, who are looking on, they see him die. So Joseph, one of them, Joseph goes to Pilate, the governor, to officially request the body. Well, the governor's surprised. What? He can't be dead already. It's only been six hours. Nobody dies that quickly in crucifixion. They did not take him, his life from him. He laid it down on his own accord. But so Pilate double-checks. Pilate goes back to the centurion. He summons the officer to come in and, and certify to him, yes, governor, he is dead. We rammed a spear into his heart to make sure. So Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a shroud, laid him in a tomb. They didn't go to the emergency room. They rolled a stone against the entrance, closed it up, because Jesus is dead. And the women saw where they'd laid him. They turned and walked away. They'll come back in a couple days after the Sabbath is over with spices to anoint his body for burial. Because that's all that's left to do. Because Jesus is dead. That's the dark, foreboding end of chapter 15. It sets up the abrupt ending in chapter 16. It's, it's, it's hard for us to put ourselves in that place. Because we know the rest of the story. We know what happens next. We know what continues after that. But I want us to try to step back into Mark 16 this morning and experience what they experience as they come to the tomb. And so we move from crucifixion and burial into Sunday morning. We come with the same expectation then as those women have. That expectation is they're going to go, they're going to do one last loving act of properly washing, anointing the body for burial. 
Now, they're not thinking clearly. They're in the midst of grief. Along the way, they haven't even made the proper plans for how are we going to open the tomb. Along the way, they remark, well, what are we going to do? They're just going to have to go with the flow. They're going to have to come up with a plan as they go. They have no idea how true that will be. And so they come close, and they're looking. And they see in that early morning light that the tomb is already open. The very large stone has been rolled back. What? Who disturbed the grave? Who has already been here? What have they done with his body? Now don't get wrapped up at this point in the differences from one gospel to another. The, the various gospel writers, four of them, four, four witnesses, are giving us various accounts from different perspectives and including different details that morning. All the details harmonize together. One gospel writer includes all three of these women there that morning, and one focuses just on Mary, just focuses the lens on one. Doesn't mean that the others weren't there, for instance. Some include the comings and going of the disciples, and they don't see the body either. Others, like Mark, do not. So, we want to, what is Mark trying to get at here? What is Mark showing us? What is Mark showing the church? Because he writes this about 50, maybe in the early 60s, to Christians who already believe, who already know the end of the story, and they're going to be surprised at his ending. I try to figure out what to do with it. And so there are the women. They see the tomb open. They go inside, and there sits a man. Well, it's an angel, really, but they might not understand that right away. But when you enter a tomb, being surprised, anybody is scary. They, they, they enter the tomb, the angel says to them, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Well, it's easy for you to say, angel. But, but, but I have just come early in the morning. There's still kind of darkness somewhat hanging over the morning. I've come expecting, not knowing how I'm going to get the tomb open, and I find it already ajar. Now imagine yourself wandering through a, a graveyard early in the morning. It's one of those kinds of graveyards where they have all these big mausoleum kind of thing, family mausoleum tombs where, where different coffins will be stacked up in there, right? And, you, and you're walking through the graveyard. Why you'd be doing that, I don't know. But there you are. And you're walking through the graveyard and you find one of them. The door is half open. What do you do? If you're a 15, 16-year-old boy, you say, hey, dudes, let's go in. Anybody else would know better. You don't go into an empty, an open tomb. And if you go into an open tomb, the last thing you expect is for somebody to say, hey, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> the angel says, don't be alarmed. I don't know about you, but I got alarms going off all over the place. The only people supposed to be in here are dead people, and they don't talk. Why is it that a tomb is such a scary place? Why is it that death is so intimidating to us? It's because we know it's an end, and yet we know that it's not. Death reminds us that there's the whole spiritual realm that we don't know about, that we haven't experienced, and yet it's there. And yet there has been a change, there's been a move, there's been a transition. The person that was here is no longer with us and we don't know exactly what's going on now, but there's this whole spiritual realm here that we cannot see and control. And we're afraid of what we don't know. 
It's kind of like being afraid of the dark. We're afraid of what we don't know, and death is that thing. It's like going around a corner, and we haven't been this way before. And so death has that fear, that trepidation about it. It's unknown and unknowable. It's, the angel says, don't be alarmed. Yeah, easy for the angel to say. Well, the angel knows why that we're here. The angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Now pause for a minute. The angel lets us in on something there that we easily overlook as we read through the story. The angel knows why they're there. The angel knows who they're looking for. Well, you say, well, why wouldn't he? He's an angel. Well, angels don't know everything. Only God knows everything. Angels are not omniscient. And yet the angel knows because I think all of heaven has been watching. Jerusalem has been live streaming in heaven 24-7 this last week. They have been taking in everything that's going on. The angels have been astounded. They are in awe at how far God is going to rescue, to restore this rebellious humanity. And so they've seen it all. They've been taking it in in wonder and awe. And now all of heaven has rejoiced. The king of glory has come forth. He's risen. Somebody's got to tell these women. And so there he waits for them. And here they are. He's not here. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. But he is not here. He is risen. Look. Here's the place where they laid him. It's, it's, it's empty. And the ladies are probably not really hearing all that he has to say here, but they're looking there. They're looking at that stone ledge where the body was, and it's not there. Somebody moved it. Who moved it? Where have they taken him? What have they done with him? And the angel continues, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he said. Just as he told you. Now, like I said, the women are not really listening at this point, not yet, but we're a little more removed. We can catch things that are being said here. And one of the things I noticed, one of the things I noticed is they said, he's risen. So go and tell the disciples and Peter. Did you catch that? That's a strange way to put it, isn't it? Because isn't Peter one of the disciples? Isn't Peter a leading disciple, in fact? But Peter probably doesn't feel like it these days. People, Peter probably doesn't feel worthy. Because when it came down to it, he denied even knowing Jesus. Just as Jesus had said that he would. Funny thing is, the reality of Peter's denial could have given him confidence. What, you say? The reality of Peter's denial, just as Jesus said, could have given him confidence that everything else would be just as Jesus said. When did that happen, that prediction of Peter's denial? Well, in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, 28, just in that Passion Week, just before his arrest, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you will all fall away just as it is written. I will strike the shepherd 
and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, he told him before, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There you will see him. It's just after this that Peter jumps up and said, Lord, no. No matter what these other loafers do, he said, not me. They might deny you, but I'll never deny you. I'm not like them. And the Lord says, Peter, truly before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. That means this very night, before morning comes, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And it's just the way that happened. In fact, just after his third denial in cursings, he hears the rooster crow the second time. And it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He had failed just as Jesus said that he would. But that that could have told him that the rest of it would also be true just as Jesus said. That he would die, yeah, but he would rise from the dead. There's something here for Peter in all of us. Inside, we wonder, does God really love me? Does God really accept me when I've failed, when I've been unfaithful? God's word through the angel is tell the disciples and Peter. Especially Peter. Don't leave Peter out. Don't let Peter disqualify himself for I have qualified Peter. Jesus qualified Peter. It is not your strength. It is not your ability to not fail, to not falter, to not deny. That is not what qualifies you in good standing before God. It's Jesus who has stood for you. It is Jesus who qualifies us. And in fact, our failings, our unfaithfulness simply confirm the word that none is righteous, no, not even one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of, of God, and therefore salvation, redemption, is only in Jesus for us. It just tells us, it reminds us, our failings simply remind us, I desperately need Jesus. You ever thought about it that way? Put the guilt trip aside. Put the, put the um, self-blaming and the, and the self-beating down. Lay that all aside and say, all that tells me. When the devil whispers accusations in your ear of all the things that you do and have done, you can say, that's right, but that's why I need Jesus as my Savior. I'll cling to him. Because what he said about me is true. What he said about him is true. So Peter could have known, should have known, that Jesus would rise from the dead. All of them should have known. Even Mary, even the women, as the angel points out, he's risen. You'll see him just as he told you. You know, he told them that as early as Matthew 12. Half, not even halfway through Matthew's gospel. When the, when, the, when the Jewish leadership has hardened the resolve, the rejection of him as Messiah. They say, you think you're the Messiah, prove it to us. Give us a sign. He says, no, no, no sign's going to be given except the sign of Jonah. 
Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights only in the heart of the earth. And you know what comes next with the fish? We know what would come next with Jesus. In Matthew 16, in a pagan Disneyland of idolatrous temples in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do people say that I am? There's all kinds of answers. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps right up. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, that's right, Peter. And yet, you haven't figured this out. Somebody else didn't tell you this. God in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he goes on to tell them. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. One more place. There, there are many. I'll just, I'll just give you this one more. He says, look, guys, look, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And what's going to happen next? They're gonna, he's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. And he'll, he will be raised again on the third day. The women come dejectedly in despair to the tomb that morning, not even knowing how they're going to open it, thinking they have to. The disciples are hiding in an upper room like we often do because they've forgotten all that Jesus said. That's what we need to hold on to. What Jesus has said, what God has said is the answer to our fear, our hesitancy. Our, our hesitancy comes more than anything else from not remembering and not believing what God has said. No matter what, no matter what's going on, no matter how dark things seem to be in your circumstances at the moment, Remember what God has said. Remember how it ends. Remember how God has said things are going to be for all eternity because it will be just as he said. So, as abruptly as it begins, now the gospel of Mark comes to an end at verse 8. So what do the ladies do? Verse 8 says, they went out. And they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's so abrupt of an ending, in fact, that additional verses have been added since to finish the story. You see, Mark is writing to a church that already knows the end of the story. He's not writing to people that are hearing this for the very first time. And they say, that, uh, it doesn't end there. It can't end like that. In fact, it didn't end like that. And so they, along the way in the copying, the transmission, the sending copies of other places to other churches, somebody along the way added in various endings. And what is included from verse 9 forward is, is, is probably the most common one that shows up in copies of manuscripts. But the earliest manuscripts don't include it. They stop it. Verse 8, it creates all kinds of Greek scholarly questions that we dig into that you do not want me to dig into this morning. But what if, what if Mark did actually intend for his gospel to end just that way? What if as abruptly as it started, so it ends, leaving us to question what happens next? 
What should they have done? What should we do? What are we going to do with what the angels have reminded us is true? You see, because it's not about what the angels say. That's not the point. An angel can tell you anything. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. There are angels that tell the truth. There are angels who lie. But how do you know? The angel is telling them just what Jesus had said. They can determine if the angels got it straight by remembering and comparing it to what it was that Jesus had already told them over and over and over again. And that's what we can do as well. They were told, don't be afraid. Go and tell. He's risen just as he said. Well, they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. What about you? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What keeps you from believing what Jesus has said? For some of us, we're afraid to hope. We're afraid to believe that it could be true. It's like in the grand scheme of things, we have been April fooled in life too many times already. We have had people promise me things that we hoped would be true only to find out that they are not. And we're disappointed again. And calluses grow over our heart and over our faith and we dare not believe again lest we be disappointed. But what if, what if others' unfaithfulness Others' promises that were not true, what if that simply were to remind you that it's only God's word that is true? Romans 3 says that God will be true even if every person is found to be a liar, that God can be trusted. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Timothy, even when we are unfaithful, God abides faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. God, is, God binds himself by his own word. What he has said, he will do. God will always be true. You don't need to worry about believing in him in vain. The Bible says that those who hope in him will never be shamed, never be embarrassed, never have the rug pulled out from under them. God will deliver For many people, they're afraid of what others will think. What are other people going to think of, of me thinking that way, but me believing that? What are other people going to think about me? You should, you should care about what people think. But you should be controlled by what God thinks. People's opinions are funny things. They can shift this way. They can turn faster than Facebook's fortunes. But God has given you his word. God has told you how it is. God has given you his promise. He says, I will be with you always. Him you can count on. And that promise is exactly what happens next for Mary. According to the other Gospels, while she remains there, lingering by the tomb, afraid, astonished, confused, Jesus comes to her and shows himself to her. He speaks his word to her heart. She didn't even recognize him at first. But Jesus comes to her. Jesus meets her, a personal encounter with him. I would suggest that when you're afraid, when you're unsure, and Christian, you will be at times, when you're afraid, you could whisper a prayer. Jesus, remind me of who you are. 
Jesus, remind me of what you have said. It's kind of like that man who in his desperation, he says, he says, Lord, if you can, heal my child. And Jesus says, if you can, anything is possible to those who believe. And he responds to the Lord. He says, oh, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Oh, we live there a lot. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's where Mary is. Perhaps that's where you are. If you really want him to show you, if you really want him to remind you then of what he has said, then after that prayer, go back to, John, to Mark chapter 1 and start reading again and being reminded. Matthew 1, Luke 1, John 1. But rehearse in your head and heart what it is that God has told you about his son. It occurs to me that the words of God's messenger reminding the women of what it was that Jesus had said to them. The words of the messenger actually prepare her. She doesn't even realize it, but the words of this angelic messenger prepare her for her own personal encounter with the risen Jesus himself. Angel means messenger. The angel that, that, that morning is God's messenger to remind them this is what he said so that she's a little more ready when he encounters her directly. It occurs to me, I get that same privilege this morning. I get to be God's messenger. I get to remind you of what it is that God has said concerning Jesus. And yet it's not just me up here on a platform in front of the church. All of us who believe have that privilege. We are the ones who can go and tell his disciples. And anybody, everybody, we are the ones who can go and tell. We can be the messenger to, like this angel, prepare somebody for their own personal encounter with the risen Jesus himself. If it was up to me, they would be in trouble. But God will use me and you to introduce others to himself. And so you who believe... <laughs> Just what do we do with, with, with Mary's story here? You who believe, don't be afraid. Go and tell. You be his messengers. We're not going to pass judgment on these women, you see. At the tomb that morning, shaken, bewildered by events they didn't think could be true. Startled by a messenger inside a tomb. No wonder they're afraid. We're not going to come down hard on them. But let what happens there that morning intersect with the reality in us, I too am afraid, and I too don't need to be. I too hesitate, and I too don't have to. I too have been called to tell, and I too will tell. Because he's not here. He's risen. He's here. What are you going to do? Are you willing to believe that it's just as Jesus said, that he died for you, that he's risen? Are you willing to believe that if Jesus is risen, I too could tell somebody? The postscript of Mark tells us that Jesus' resurrection was not the end. In fact, to use Mark's phrase from the very beginning of his gospel in verse 1, chapter 1, this was the end of the beginning. 
Because Mark tells us right at the start that his, gospel, his writing is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. It now starts to really take off. It was the beginning of the gospel. The real story starts here. Jesus is raised to give you and I new life in him. To live forever with him. In fact, to reign with Jesus who will reign as king of kings and lord of lords forever. Jesus died for me. Jesus saves. He is risen. Jesus reigns. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He came to die, to rise, to come again, to reign as king, and to lift you to be with him. If only we'll believe it. If only we'll accept that from God. All this will be just as he said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. And Father, that for anyone here this morning who would simply believe that, believe that Jesus died just as he said he would for us. That Jesus is risen from the dead. This is no April Fool's. This is reality. This is eternity. That he lives forever to reign forever. That he would lift us to reign with him if only we'll accept what he's done for us. If only we'll believe in Jesus instead of ourselves and our own ability. Lord, our confidence is in you. Lord, I would pray for anyone here this morning that Perhaps this is the first time they've heard it that way. That Jesus' death and resurrection is for them. To be believed by them. That they could be lifted with him. Oh, Father, that this morning they would believe. That they're rejoicing in this offering that we're about to receive. Their rejoicing would be on that card. I have believed in Jesus. Oh, tell me what to do next. Where do I go from here? And Father, for this offering, Lord, on Easter, there's nothing that we could give. Your son Jesus gave everything. But so now, Lord, we would return back to you only what we would ask you to use in this church, in this community, Father, around the world, that you would use what we would give, that others would know that Jesus lives, that Jesus saves, that they too can be saved by trusting him. We thank you for that, Lord. Do that in Jesus' name. And all who believe said, amen. amen.